through Christ our Lord. Amen. So I invite you to keep your Bibles open to that passage that Hillary just read. We've been working through 1 John, uh, the letter of 1 John, the past few weeks. And um, in, the, in this part of the letter, in chapter 4, John's coming to the end of the letter. And he kind of brings it all together here at this point. And you might remember that he's arguing uh, with a group who were in the church, but they were causing problems in the church because of their bad theology. Uh, these people thought they were... Uh, Christians, but they were wrongly believed that they that we are saved not through faith in Jesus and his death on the cross, but through some secret knowledge that can only be granted through some kind of special relationship with the Holy Spirit or special rituals that they only participated in. And it was causing problems. They also believed wrongly that uh, a good spirit could not mix with evil matter, including human flesh. And so uh, the real challenge with this uh, this view was that they thought that Jesus could not be both God and human. He was either God who just appeared to be a human, or he was a man who only appeared to be divine. And they, they were a fairly arrogant bunch, and uh, they were treating other Christians with disdain uh, because they did not know Christ like they knew Christ. And so it was just causing a lot of problems in the early church. And their lack of love for their brothers and sisters in Christ was really appalling to John and to the other disciples. And so... Um, John was clearly stating in this part of 1 John chapter 4 the foundation of love and stating, really making a case for God's lavish sacrificial love through Christ in this passage. And it kind of brings into clear view how Christians are different uh, and we're called to love differently than this group was living out in this time that John lived. And really, for us today, it also reinforces really how different this love is that God calls us to, how different this love is than the love that the world knows, and how we're to live even now. So what I want us to do is kind of work back through this passage, uh, through the verses, and so I invite you to look with me at the first couple of verses, uh, verses 7 and 8 in this passage. I'm going to read them, and then let's just think about them for a little bit. So John says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So, again, we're being reminded that we're called to love because God is love. He starts the phrase that he says, Dear friends, let us love one another. His logic is pretty simple. In its very essence, God is love. Um, And therefore, if we claim to follow God, he's saying we should love God. God and we should love others. And it sounds easy, doesn't it? I mean, this is just simply the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. What's so complicated about that? And especially as we, as long as we have positive feelings for and we get along with the people that we're around, then, then we're doing fine. But that's not what this passage is saying. To understand what it means in this passage to love one another, We have to understand what the word love really means that John is using here. And there are three words uh, of the Greek language that are used to describe love, and all three are found in Scripture in different places. Uh, But I want us to look at what the word love means here in this passage. And so the first word used in Scripture uh, for love is phileo. And that word really means brotherly love or friendship. And so if you know Philadelphia, Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. That's where you get the name Philadelphia. And so this is kind of a first level of love. You get to know someone. You enjoy building a friendship with them. You enjoy hanging out with them. And so you develop a close friendship. 
And so I'm sure in this church that, that there are people here that you love hanging out with and that you're good friends with. So that's phileo. That's brotherly love. The second word is eros. And this is a word for romantic love. This is the second kind of love. And so imagine a boy and a girl who have been friends for a long time. And one day the, girl, the, the guy says to the girl, I like you. And the girl says, I really like you too. And the guy says, no, I mean, I really like you. And the girl finally gets it. The boy has moved from phileo love to eros love. And the third word is agape love. And that's really the word that's being used here in this passage. And it's the deepest kind of love. This, is, this, love, this love means sacrificial love. Again, imagine this boy and this girl. Eventually, they get married. And at first, everything is perfect. It's going great. However, one day they have a really bad fight in their marriage. And at this point, she does not love him uh, as a friend. She certainly doesn't love him romantically in this moment. And at this point, agape love is not an emotion, but it's a decision to choose to love. It's an act of the will. And so reaching out in agape love draws them back together again, and they work on their problems, and eventually their relationship is restored. So that's agape love. That's the kind of love that John is writing about in this passage. Jesus says in John 13, 34, he says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is not phileo love. It's not the brotherly kind of love. It's not a friendship kind of love. It's agape love. It's sacrificial love. And so if you claim, uh, if you meet somebody who claims to know God or teaches and shows hate towards those who are created in God's image, you need to know that they do not know God if they don't love someone the way God has created them. The love that God is, the love, uh, and that, the love that we are supposed to have between each other is not just this affectionate feeling for one another. The love that God is is not just some feeling or concept. God's love is not just his character, it is also his action. In fact, you cannot separate his love from his action. There's a well-known quote that's attributed to Mother Teresa. She said, it's not enough to be compassionate, you must act. And so in his love, God is not just compassionate for us, he does something with his compassion. Let's look at verses 9 and 10 again in this passage. John goes on, he writes, he says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's love is shown through the incarnation, the cross for sinners, for you and for me. Jesus did not tell us to do something that he was unwilling or unable to do himself. He practiced what he preached. He gave us the ultimate example to follow so that we could truly understand what love is. He modeled sacrificial love for us, right, on the cross when he gave himself completely for us. Jesus, who looked down at our existence on earth, he looked down, he saw our problem of sin and hopelessness in a pit of despair, and he jumped into the pit so that he could Give us a hand to help us out of that miserable place, out of that miserable pit. And as a Christian, we're called to do the same thing. When our children were uh, preschool and elementary, young elementary age, they, one of their favorite things to do was to go to the play places that you see in a lot of the fast food restaurants, you know, the McDonald's and Burger King. And so um, 
they would just love to do that. And there was this one place that wasn't too far from where we lived, and we lived in Kansas City when our kids were that age. It was a really large recreational uh, facility, and it had this huge, monstrous play place. I mean, imagine the largest McDonald's play place you've ever seen. Take it times ten, and that's how big this place was. The place with all these tunnels and slides and ball pits, and our kids just loved it. And so my wife at the time was a part-time nurse, and she would work every third Saturday. And so I had the opportunity to help take care of the kids every third Saturday. And one of my things that I would like to do on that, t- that time I was watching them was I'd take them to the play place because, you know, I was their hero when I took them to the play place. And so they would go, and they would go play, and they would go have fun, and I could go sit by the entrance and read a book in, in quiet and just enjoy that time they were playing. And the other benefit was they'd come out of the play place, they were exhausted, we'd go grab a quick bite to eat, we'd go home, and what would they have to do? Take a nap. And I could watch football for a couple of hours. It was a sweet deal. So when we went to the play place, everybody was happy when we went to the play place. So this one time, this one Saturday, we went to this large place, large play place. They're having a blast. I'm enjoying some quiet time. And pretty soon, after a long period of time, our oldest, Connor, by two years, he comes kind of walking out. He's exhausted. I could tell. I could see in his eyes. He was done. He was ready to go home. And so I said, well, hey, where's Rachel, buddy? And he said, oh, I don't know. I haven't seen her for a while. And I looked at him and I thought, I asked him, I said, well, how long's a while? And I realized I'm trying to have a conversation with a five-year-old. How's a five-year-old define a while, right? He couldn't tell how much time it had been. So I said, okay, let's walk around the outside of this thing and see if we can see her somewhere in there. And then we can yell at her. We can get out of here. And so we're walking around the perimeter. We're looking. We can't find her anywhere. And so I'm coming to the realization soon that, uh, you know, if I go home without Rachel, it will not be a good day in the home front. Diane will not be pleased with me if I come home without Rachel. So I realize we're going to have to go in on an all-search rescue mission to go find Rachel so we can get her out of there and we can go home. And we both had to go in because it was so big. I was afraid that if just one of us went in, we weren't going to be able to find her. And so neither one of us were too excited about it. Connor was exhausted. He was not feeling very compassionate to go find his sister in the moment, but he knew he had to go in. And I wasn't too excited, not because I wasn't compassionate. I was very compassionate. But I'm looking at the structure thinking they don't build this thing for guys who are six foot five, you know. And I knew I had to go in there and climb through all these tunnels, and it was not comfortable. And so, and I also knew if we both went in, there was this possible risk, too, that it was so big she could get between both of us. We would never see her. She'd get out, and then we'd really be in trouble, you know. And so it was a risk, but we knew we had to go in. It was an all-search all rescue mission for Rachel. And so that brings me to read again the, part of the, the passage where John writes. He said, this is how God showed his love for us, among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. God didn't just send one of his older children into the children's player in the ball uh, pit to fetch another one out. He sent his one and only son as a baby who grew up to fetch all of us into his kingdom. He doesn't just send his only son to fetch us. He sends him to be a sacrifice on the cross to pay the price for everything that we've done wrong so that we can come home. He sent his son to die. He sent Jesus not because we loved him so much, and wanted to be with him. He sent him before we loved him. John again writes, not that we love God, but that he loved us. God is not just compassionate. He acts. He sacrifices his own, his only son, so that we might have life. Let's look at verse 11 again. 
John goes on, he says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So we're called to love like God loves. Our love for each other should be like God's love for us, not just affection, but active love, sacrificial love, not action that is worth nothing to us, but sacrificial actions. If love costs us nothing, it's not love. It's not the kind of love that John's writing about here in this passage. The early Christians recognized this in Acts 2 when they would sell pieces of their own property to ensure that other Christians, other brothers and sisters in Christ, had enough for food, had enough to eat. There was a non-Christian Greek writer, Lucian, who lived about A.D. 120 to 200, about 100 or 150 years after Jesus. And he made an observation about Christians. This is what he said. He said, it's incredible to see the fervor with which the people of that religion help each other in their wants. They spare nothing. Their first legislator, Jesus, has put it into their heads that they're brethren. He said that Christians spare nothing. Nothing, And it was a witness to him. He, he found it unbelievable to see how they shared with each other. Sparing nothing is an indi- indication of unconditional love. God's love is costly and sacrificial. And it's given without the assurance that we would respond positively to him. You know, when I emptied out my bank account, I went out and bought a diamond ring for Diane 28 years ago. Uh, I was pretty sure of her response. We had dated for a number of years. We'd even talked some about marriage. She seemed pretty interested or open to that idea. And so when I was ready to ask the question, I knew I was pretty sure of how she was going to respond, that she would say yes. Paul writes in a passage that God loved us and sent his only son to die for us while we were enemies. He was in no way sure of our response. And our love is to be the same. Jesus says, what good is it if you love people who you know are going to love you back? Don't even the pagans do that? Instead, love those who may never be able to show love in return. That's sacrificial love. That's the kind of love John's writing about in this passage. Let's go on and look at verses 12 through 16. John says, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. So God's love is shown to us again even in greater ways by the giving of His Holy Spirit to us. God's love is not just costly, it's intimate. If God's love was only shown to us through the coming of Jesus and His death on the cross, it would be amazing and kind of an out-of-this-world kind of love, but it would still have kind of a distance to it. You know, like 2,000 years of distance to it. And although it's fantastic and it's more love than we could ever expect from, from God, God's love is not only shown in that one act 2,000 years ago. God's love is not only shown through him sending his son to die for us. God's love is also shown by sending his Holy Spirit to live within us. What Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago gave us the possibility of reconciliation with God. The Holy Spirit is the reality of that reconciliation today. God comes and he moves in. He doesn't just move into the neighborhood. He doesn't just move into the house. He moves into you. He moves into us. And what God does is even more intimate 
than a marriage relationship. It's not just body-to-body intimacy or soul-to-soul. It's spirit-to-spirit. And His Spirit teaches our spirit that we are well-loved children. He whispers in our ear, God is your Father. You can call Him Abba. You can call Him Daddy. He's so intimate with you. He loves you so much we can call our Heavenly Father Abba or Daddy. Let's pick it up in verse 16. He goes on. He says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God lives in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We're to love. Our love is to be like Jesus' love. The way that we love each other is to be the same way that Jesus loved the people around him. And there's no fear in this love. Jesus had no fear when he loved others. You can see it all through Scripture. And and this love is not a uh, fear-based religion like voodoo or other religions where you have to placate the gods or else they're going to come after you or they're going to punish you. No, our faith is a love-based religion that says that God loves you. And you don't have to jump through hoops to earn his love or to please him. He's already pleased enough to die for you. He's already pleased enough with you to send you his Holy Spirit to live within us. We don't have to earn this love. You've already earned it. You already have it. God has written your name on the palm of his hand. He's not leaving me. He's got Wes tattooed on his hand. He's got your name tattooed in his palm. That's what the passage says in Scripture. And let's go on and read verses 19 through 21. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And so love is the core of our faith. It's central. It's the middle. It's the everything that comes around it. There are many things that are key to our faith. You know, truth. Doug talked about truth. John shares about truth just before this passage in 1 John. So truth is important. Right belief. Morality. Our character is all important. Right action. Justice. You know, being good stewards of our lives that God gives us and of all the resources He gives us. All those things are key to our faith. But our faith begins and it ends with love. All these other things lose their meaning if they're not surrounded by love. It's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when he when he says, "You know what?" He says, "You can have all these things, all these great things. But if you have all of them and you don't love, then you're just like a clanging cymbal. You're not worth anything without love." And so uh, St. Jerome was an early church father that we have some history that he recorded. And he recounts that John, uh, the evangelist, the one that wrote this letter, the apostle, that he was living in Ephesus at his very end of his life. And he was so uh, old and kind of decrepit that he couldn't walk anymore. He had to be carried in to worship. And, and he uh, had no strength for a lengthy preaching or even exhortation. But but St. Jerome writes that he could say this one phrase still as he got much older. He's, he would go around uh, saying, agapo men alelas, which is Greek for let us love one another. And that's pretty much all he would say when he got really older. 
And at length, the disciples and church members who were there kind of began to begin wearied by this same response that John would say every time he was at church. And they asked him, they said, Master, why do you always say this? And he replied, because it's the Lord's command. And if that alone is done, it suffices. It's as simple as John writes. The love that we have for each other comes from God. But if we do not show love for each other, how can we say that we love God when the love is supposed to come from Him? Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Let me pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You for this incredible love that demonstrated to us, this love that You lavished upon us, that You were willing to give Your Son that your son was willing to come and take on our flesh and live for us and then more amazingly to die for us, even for our sin, for our failure, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin, for our our failure. And your love is so lavish, God, that you don't stop there, but you keep on loving us. You, in fact, give us the very presence of your Holy Spirit to live within us, to guide us, to direct us, to comfort us, to challenge us, to grow us. And your Spirit is at work in each of us who call Christ uh, our, our, our Savior. And you're bringing about this transformation in our lives into the very likeness of Christ. Your love is so amazing, so abundant, so lavish. And God, as we look at your love and, and we think about the commandment to love one another sacrificially, God, We can't do that in our own strength. We can't do that in our own ability. That love does not come from within us. That love only comes from you. And so, God, we pray that you would draw us closer and closer into that love that we receive from you and that out of that love that we then can love one another with that sacrificial love. God, we we need that from you because we cannot do that on our own. And so, God, but our hope, our prayer, our heart's desire is we want to be faithful. We want to be found faithful as your disciples. We want to be faithful to Jesus' commandment to love one another, that agape, that sacrificial love. So, Lord, help us to live in your love, to be overwhelmed by your love, and to love others as we experience that love from you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.